0: The Watcher and the Friend by R.J. Barron. Chapter Two. The Grandfather Clock. He made his way downstairs, his feet sinking into the thick pile carpet that covered the middle section of the oak floorboards. At the top of the final flight down, he hesitated. The door to the kitchen was slightly ajar. And the sound of his parents' raised voices, arguing, came to him. He stopped, hardly daring to breathe, then lent his head over the banister and listened. "'But what was he doing out there, Graham? He was so near the edge of the cliff, you don't think... "'No, of course not, Sally,' his father interrupted. "'We've got to keep calm about all of this. We don't want to get hysterical. It just makes things worse.' Sally scoffed. You mean that I have to keep calm? Why don't you just say that instead of all of this we stuff? Look, all I'm saying is that I think he's coping with all of this better than you think. Better than we might have thought. It's just that that spot is where they both used to spend a lot of time together, that's all. But we don't know that for sure. And it's bound to bring back all the memories. There was a slight pause and the sound of a chair being scraped against the flagstone kitchen floor. The voices when they came were somehow warmer than before. Tom relaxed. He could imagine that his dad had got up to go and give his mum a hug, to make her feel better. He was good at that. Look, love, we have to be brave enough to trust him, give him some space. I think it'll be easier when Jack and Megan arrive. At least Dan will be company for Tom. On the landing above, Tom was set to burst with the effort of staying silent. He thought about the conversation he'd just overheard. Growing up was nothing to look forward to, if that was what being an adult meant. It was much easier being a kid when you only had to think about yourself. He couldn't listen to any more of it, and decided to rescue them from themselves. He bounced down the stairs as loudly as he could get away with, without arousing suspicion, and shouted down to announce his presence. Mum, what time are Dan and all that lot due to arrive? And with that, he burst into the kitchen to see his parents on either side of the room, each with a frozen look on their face. I think they're coming late afternoon. They'll message us tomorrow with the exact time, his dad said. So we've got the whole morning before they get here. What shall we do? Inside, Tom breathed a sigh of relief. Now they could just have dinner and talk about normal stuff without being worried or sad. It was about 10 o'clock when Tom finally went to bed and after writing in his diary and reading a bit of his book, he slipped into a troubled sleep, tossing and turning. It was not long before he was in the middle of a vivid dream. His dream was a strange troubling mixture of the fantasy book he'd started that night and the events surrounding Grace's accident. The accident dream was less frequent now perhaps once every couple of weeks, but it still left him gasping for air in a pool of sweat. He'd managed to conceal it from his parents, who thought the dream had stopped months earlier, to avoid their suffocating concerns for him. And in this house, with its rambling corridors and three floors, there was a good chance that any crying out in his sleep would not be heard. There was Grace, walking back from school on her own, having been at an after-school orchestra rehearsal, listening to music on her phone while checking her messages cut off from the outside in a world of her own. She made sure that when she stopped at the curb around the corner from their house, she removed her headphones and put the phone in her pocket. Although a feisty independent girl She was also sensible and knew that daily lectures from her mother about paying attention on the pavements were correct, even if she resented being treated like a six-year-old. As she stepped off the curb to cross, the camera in his dream shifts to the inside of a grubby white van, where the young lad driving leans down to reply to the latest WhatsApp message from his girlfriend. By the time he looks up again from his phone, there is a horrible, soft, yielding thud from the inevitable collision. The sound always ends the dream. Tom sat bolt upright in the unfamiliar bed as if shot from a gun, the duvet cast to the floor, staring wildly around the darkness of the room, his breathing laboured and painful. He grabbed hold of the headboard behind him to stop the room whirling around and took a moment to let his gasping breaths become more even. After a minute in this position he reached for the glass of water beside his bed and drank. His breathing steady, his heartbeat slowed. He felt just about ready to sit back down on his bed, lie back and try and get to sleep, when his eye was caught by a strange reflected light behind him. He turned to face it. There in the air at the end of the bed were three dancing balls of light endlessly circling round each other. He blinked and looked again, screwing his eyes as if to make sure he was not still dreaming. There they were still, patiently revolving, as if they were waiting for him to make his mind up. He held his breath as, fully awake now, he could no longer doubt the reality of what he was seeing. The circles, about the size of tennis balls, changed colour continually as they circled, and slightly pulsed as they changed in size and intensity of light. Tom stared at them, silently pulsing and circling, bobbing in the air above the end of his bed, they cast a faint, eerie glow around the rest of the room. Was it something from outside, he wondered, something reflecting light through the edges of the curtains, like the moon? He let go of the bedhead and began to walk, one faltering step at a time, towards the end of the bed so that he could look out of the window and into the grounds outside. As he stepped towards the balls of light, they jumped a little higher into the air and moved back by the same distance he had taken towards them. He stopped. So did the balls, settling back into their previous rhythm of gently dancing in front of him. He took another tentative step towards them. They again jumped into the air a little higher, pulsed a little brighter, and moved backwards away from him. Another step, and he was at the end of the bed, and the balls were in the middle of the room. One more step and he was on the way towards the window, and the balls had moved to the corner, towards the great-grandfather clock. And then something extraordinary happened. The three balls, leaping and dancing as if in time to a change in some inaudible music, bobbed towards the clock and arranged themselves directly above it in the little gap between it and the ceiling. Underneath this soft pastel light display, the doors of the clock slowly began to come into focus, sharply defined by a crisp white glow, leaving a hard-edged rectangle of light floating in the air. It was as if someone inside the clock had turned on a torch that was spilling out through the doorframe. But that was impossible. He and Grace had tried to open the grandfather clock Many times on previous visits, as part of their exploration of the house and part of their enactment of ghostly, scary stories, they had run their hands over the body of the clock, searching for a handle or a keyhole or a door that they could open, but there'd been nothing. Tom had always wondered how they wound the clock up, but Grace, more concerned with material for her stories, had ignored it and moved on. Despite that, whatever this was, it was inside the clock. So he moved towards it, his hand stretched out in the faintly lit darkness, to touch the smooth mahogany wood of the front of the clock. Another step and his fingertips grazed the polished wood. Before he had time to think about his next move, the door swung open with a click and he had to shield his eyes from the dazzling flood of light, that poured from the cabinet. He shuffled further forward into the light that streamed all around him. His foot caught on the raised lintel of the door and he tripped, falling headlong forward into the innards of the great clock. He braced himself, expecting to crash into the back wall. But to his surprise, he sprawled onto a cold, hard floor and slid forward. The blinding light that had surged from the open doorway seconds before disappeared. He looked back towards the entrance of the clock, back out into his bedroom, dimly visible through a small rectangle, as if the doorway were a long way away. Then the door swung shut with a soft click, leaving him in complete darkness. In a panic, he scrabbled his way back to the closed door and frantically felt all around it for a handle. There was nothing except a smooth, flat surface. He was trapped. Outside, above the grandfather clock, the three coloured balls danced in triumph. He sat in the darkness, his back against the door of the grandfather clock for a while. He considered banging against it and making a fuss, but the thought of his parents' baffled questions stopped him. What on earth was going on? Was he still dreaming? He must be. It was far too weird to be true. Eventually he came to a decision. He had to explore the rest of the clock, if that's what it was. He stood up, his hands groping in the darkness for the walls. Finding the wall, he kept his fingertips resting lightly on it and began to walk forward one step at a time. It felt quite cold inside, colder than in his room, and there was the faintest hint of a breeze coming from further back inside the cavity. Slowly he made his way deeper into the passage, his eyes becoming accustomed to the dark as he went. Then he felt the floor change from the faint sound and feel of his feet on it As if it had changed from wood to stone. After about six paces he stopped, struck by a revelation. This wasn't a clock, it was a tunnel, a secret passage, maybe a smuggler's passage. Of course, how stupid of him, he'd stumbled into an old smuggler's passage, probably from the 18th century or something. He just had to think calmly, Get to the end of the passage and everything would be fine. He set off again, his hand trailing against the wall, his eyes squinting to squeeze the last bits of light out of the air. He walked for about 15 minutes, not knowing whether he was going level, uphill or downhill. And then, up ahead, as far as his damaged sense of perspective could tell, there was the faintest pinprick of light and he could feel a slightly stronger, cooler breeze on his face. As he approached the light, his hand on the wall came across a corner where the side wall, now damp and mossy, met an end wall. He felt along the corner with his fingers and found the end wall and stone turn into wood. Taking a deep breath, he stepped back and then pushed with all his might against what must surely be a door, expecting to find it locked and unyielding. Instead, in the latest of the long line of surprises that would afflict him that night, the surface gave way and he fell with a crash into a square room, dimly lit with candles. He rolled across floorboards and a rug landing in front of a pair of black leather boots spattered with mud. He looked up to see a tall white-haired old man dressed in a frock coat with a white lace ruff at his throat. He was pale-skinned and cleanly shaven. The man seemed not at all surprised to see him. As Tom spluttered and struggled to get to his feet, the man reached inside his waistcoat and pulled out a silver pocket watch, which he opened to check the time. Frowning, he closed the watch with a snap and grumbled, Hell's teeth, young sir. You took your time. We've been expecting thee, don't you know? If you enjoyed that chapter of The Watcher and the Friend by R.J. Barron, the next episode will be released on my podcast Telling Stories next week. If you can't wait to find out what happens next you can buy the book which is published by Burton Mayer's Books from my website or from Amazon. My website www.rjbarron.co.uk has lots more information about the book and the links to the podcast as well.